welcome to the Premium Property Podcast. Today we have Hannah and George from Dugard Property on the podcast. They are sources from Wales. Welcome to the podcast, guys. Hi, Hi guys. Thanks for having us on. No problem. It's a pleasure to have you on. So, tell us a bit about yourselves and your background before property. Yeah, so I'll start. Um, so, I have quite an interesting but also strange background before property, to be honest with you. So to begin with, I was working in the building trade, predominantly both plastering and rendering, but a bit of other things like concreting and stuff like that. But my dream was always to be a solicitor at that point. So I did my three years at university, um, worked out in the law in China as a commercial lawyer for a while, and also back in the UK. Um, and then, it's funnily enough, I actually went back into the building trade, um, working predominantly again in plastering and rendering, but this time project managing a lot of refurbs as well um, but I'm also uh, working for myself this time as well um, because I always wanted to be an entrepreneur that's sort of like the the background um, of myself before property and I'll let Hannah talk about hers as well yeah mine isn't that interesting I've been in IT since well I did a year of accountancy in in uni decided I definitely didn't want to be an accountant managed to get um, a job at the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Olympic Games, so I was one of the deputy venue IT managers. So I thought, right, okay, let's get MIT. Went back to uni, did that for a couple of months. I think it was three months in, and thought, no, I want to be earning money. So dropped out of uni, and then I ended up getting a full-time job with an IT company, which I've been with since 2013. So I've done roles, um, project management and account management. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of my story pre-property. Yeah. That's great. So it sounds like you both got a good sort of background and what skills would you say you've transferred through to your sourcing business from your backgrounds? I think for me, it's definitely been the communication skills. So a massive thing you need with sourcing is kind of the confidence to just be able to pick up the phone um, and contact people. That's a, that's a big element, I think. So yeah, the communication. I think the, from my project management roles, the the planning. So that obviously helps the refurbs. I think they're the two big key points for me. Yeah, and definitely for me, I'd say it's um it's the building trade. Definitely, um being able to price up refurbs is a, it was a big thing for us at the beginning, and I know a lot of people do struggle with that. And we actually um we actually put a live up not long ago on the property newbies group. Um, uh, on Facebook and we're actually um, looking to do a bit more on it on our pages as well um, about pricing refurbs as well for beginners so that was definitely that's definitely mm. a transferable skill for me um, yeah it's, it's the communication as well I suppose I um, think for you as well yours is definitely from that law background you can go into like forensic detail which I yeah. sometimes miss because I'm you probably find out that I'm really impulsive whereas George is the complete opposite. So we balance each other quite well. Um, but, George, yeah, that law background, I think being able to go into such Attention detail, to detail yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's great, guys. So what year was it that you actually set up Dugard Property? So we actually started the company. So it was twen um, June 2019 we actually yep. set up the company on Company's House. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean we started in property then. Mm. We actually did a lot of, uh, you know, background before that, going to courses, um, networking, um, 
reading a lot of property books, a mm -hmm. lot of property videos, educating ourselves to the maximum. Um, and I was, um, I suppose I still am quite risk averse. Uh, you, yeah. you, and I, I was I didn't really want to pull the trigger and then um and then one day Hannah uh, sent me a screenshot of um <laughs> basically saying that uh, do God property limited is registered on company house um so <laughs> so so that was it we haven't looked back really <laughs> yes hopefully find the yourself as well the sources the the best thing you can have is a good team around you so for us we wanted to make sure that we were networking um, before opening the business to find people that we could work with because if you can't be an expert in everything you just need to have the right people around you to help so we did a lot of networking working with people so that when we did open we were, we were ready from day one yeah that's, that's right yeah so were you um when you were networking were you looking for things like estate agents and builders and things like that yeah, so I think uh, we our first networking event we met our um, first client. Yeah, our first client. Um, we also met our broker. Yep. Um, our bro our broker's still today, and he's absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you we met builders. Yep. Um, solicitors. Um, yeah, I mean we met our pretty much our whole power team through networking before we actually became yep. established. Didn't yep. We? Um, and um, and yeah, I mean, it, I think it's brilliant, uh, the power of networking events and what they can do for your business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So did you know that these people you met for your power team, did you know that they were going to be good from the offset? Did you sort of just have to take the jump and see if they could back up what they said? So with the when we first started networking, which was some of the free ones and then more of the paid ones like um, Progressive and Property Investors Network, those ones we were more than looking for clients, but with the hope that we would find some of our power team as well. But someone mentioned, uh, I can't remember who it was, but they give some really good advice saying, if you go to property networks, all you're going to find is property people wanting to do the same thing. You need to be going to business networking where you can find one for clients, people who have money but no knowledge of property, um, and you'll start to meet other professionals. So we went to, and you'll probably have one local to you as well, it's called BNI, and it's a referral-based marketing. Um, and it's all it's all about businesses, and it's you, you pay to be part of it, but you lock out your, your, your competitors. So in your what's called chapter, so group essentially, there can only be one solicitor, one lawyer, one accountant, and you all kind of pass business to each other. So we went and experienced our local one, and it gives you trust pretty much from the get-go because you see people passing each other business confidently and thanking each other for business and giving testimonials. So when we went to our first one, in the room was an accountant, there was an estate agent, there was a solicitor, there was quite a lot of people and some trades as well and they all worked so well and you could see there was already trust there and already work carried out between each other so it gave us confidence that we could see that before using them but um but definitely um you do you do go through the sort of process of um you know our solicitor for example the one that we used at the beginning we don't use now so um 
you know, you do find that you change and and people, you know, the relationship that you had might not have been as good as you thought it was and stuff like that. But but yeah, I mean, one the one um, the one part of our power team we've kept right from the beginning is our broker, and he's been absolutely brilliant the whole way through, hasn't he? Yeah. Um. So so yeah, they you do you do um you do change the power team, but but um obviously that that's what we got from the beginning. Yeah. So for um. So moving on a bit, so for people that aren't too sure about what you guys do, are you able to explain to us what type of strategies you do? Yeah, so I'll take this one. So we're based in South Wales, and for the sourcing arm of our business, we work with uh, investors in two ways. It can either be bespoke, and what we mean by this is we will work to that client's requirements and budget, um, essentially shop to order and we will find them properly. So we focus on single lets, um, implementing the buy refurbish refinance strategy. So for those who don't know what that means, um, it's as simple as you buy a rundown property um, using cash or bridging finance, you renovate the property, and then you finance the property to pull out as much cash as possible. Um, so that's the one that we make. We still do turnkey buy to lets as well, which is pretty much buying a property that's ready to just rent out from day one. Um, but the buy refurbish refinance strategy is definitely the most popular. So we use that in, in South Wales. And then the other way that I mentioned, the mailing list. Um, so for any deals that are passed to us from our network that don't match our bespoke clients' criteria, we will share them um, via our mailing list. And people can just buy them deals. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um and in in terms of strategy as well, um, we have a, just taken on our first five bed uh, rent to rent in Newport, South Wales, um, and we're we're uh, pushing a lot at the moment to go into the uh, the rent to rent sphere as well. So I suppose they're the three strategies that we mm-hmm. focus on mainly, isn't it? It's the buy refurbish for finance, the turnkey property investment, and, and rent to rent. Yep. Yeah, so um, when you were talking about your sourcing and buy referral finance, how do you go about attracting investors? So, I mean, I think the best way to attract investors is just document everything you do mm-hmm. on social media. Um, literally, we, I mean, we haven't networked as much as a lot of people do, have we? I mean, we do network, but we don't network like, for example, we know people that go to pretty much every single pin, every single PPN. But we find that we get so much business just from telling everyone what we do on social media. It's not just on social media as well. It's everywhere you go. Uh, Just tell people what you do. And you just find that um, business will just come to you and investors will just come to you. And then when you get on the phone to them and you, you you confidently tell them what you do, and you show because Hannah does most of the investor calls, and she confidently tells, you know, shows, showcases previous, previous deals and stuff like that. And then, and then that's pretty much the way we attract investors, isn't it? But we've also got quite a few through networking. Um, can you think of any other? Yeah, ways I think that- a really simple way. So social media is a massive one. Um, networking events, but something simple is we have a lot of branded clothing, which advertises what we do. We have separate branded clothing depending on where you're going to wear them. So we have one for events um, to attract investors. We have ones um, that attracts people who want to sell their properties and so on. So wearing branded clothing as well, um, that's always quite good because you'll find people will always inquire about what your services actually are. Yeah, the, the, the way that we actually got into wearing branded clothing is we have a... We have a couple of friends up north, and uh, we met them at the Success Resources event where Gary V was speaking, 
and Grant Cardone, and um, they were wearing branded clothing there, and they pretty much had on the back of their tops property investment and sourcing specialists. And um, it was just amazing how many people were pulling them to the side mm. and asking them if they've got any deals going on at the moment. And then since we've started wearing them as well, it really has shown the results, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, it? Like Hannah said, it's not just the property, you know, the property sourcing side of things, but it's also, um, you know, when you're out in the gym wearing a top that says we buy houses on the back. People, people, we just find people come up to us and go, oh, do you buy houses? Like we've got a rundown house down the road. Um, do you find, do you mind coming having a look at it and give? And yeah, we're like, yeah, we'll come and give you, uh, give you an offer and have a look round it, and uh, hopefully we can find a solution for you because uh, it's a problem property and we're all about solving problems for people at the same time as linking it up with our investors. Yeah, definitely. So have you, with the branded clothing, have you found that, especially the We Buy Houses one, have you ever had it where someone's come to you with a property that you don't typically deal with and you can't really take that on? And if so, what has happened with that? So for us, we've been quite fortunate with the network that we've built in South Wales that we know and get along with um, some other sources that, we, and not all of us focus on the same strategy. So we work with a source really well who kind of, their niche is rent to rents. We know others who specifically look at HMOs. Um, and we've got a good relationship with all these and we regularly co-source. So if we are approached by someone, and like George said, we we always aim to help, especially with properties um if they come to us and it's not something we can help them with we hopefully know someone who can so we can we can pass on that lead and work with them to bring that to fruition yeah i guess it's just the fact that you've built up that network so you can instead of just passing someone on actually help them yeah 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 definitely i mean a lot of people find that other sources are competition but we just find them as our best friend (laughs) yeah yeah definitely (laughs) So we know that you, obviously you said you've come for, you invest in South Wales. Um, is what's, is there any different laws there? And if so, is there any sort of strategies that work in the UK but don't work in, the, in Wales because of that? So there's three main things really that jump out of me when, when people ask about what's different in Wales. So um, I'm not sure if you've come across Article 4, but... Wales is pretty much blanket across Wales, Article 4. And what this means is unless a property is specifically for HMOs. So if a property um, doesn't have a licence and it's in one of the saturated areas such as Cardiff or Swansea, um, you need planning permission and you need a licence to to convert to a HMO. So you'll find that HMO properties that already have a licence in Wales come with a pretty hefty price tag because of their privilege. So HMOs, you'll find up north, they're normally they're really good for cash flow, and you'll find up north they're a lot easier to, to be able to source or to find. Um, and for that reason, Wales, they can be a bit harder. So that's one. Um, separately, so um, Wales are a devolved government, which means that they set their own um, regulations, if that's the right word. And um, So we're in England, you have stamp duty. In Wales, it's called land transaction tax. And up into, I think off the top of my head, £180,000 purchase price. Sounds really pretty much the same, so 2% for additional house. Um, yeah, the rates and bands are the same up until 180 k and from there they change. So I think England then have 
higher percentages I need to be paid. So you're you're best off in Wales after that. But they, they are pretty close, but that's one thing to watch out for. And then the third one then is Rent Smart Wales, which is a um, legislation created by the government where all landlords need to be registered with Rent Smart Wales and have carried out online training um, to be registered as a landlord, whether you're self-managing or not. Okay, so overall it's pretty similar to the UK with a few slight differences. Yeah, pretty yeah. much. The HMO um, law, is that why you chose single lets over HMOs or was it not because of that? No, that did play a part in it. Um, for us, we like to be able to... Because where we focus on, so obviously there's different parts of Wales, HMOs obviously work best in city centres. Um, but for us, the bi-refurbishery finance strategy, especially at the moment anyway, is very on trend. It's something that's very popular with investors. Um, and in Wales, that's probably the strategy personally that I think works best just because of you're able to recycle um, your money whilst holding your assets, whereas HMOs is quite a lot of upfront costs and there's a lot more to operate in a HMO than a single let. Yeah. Yeah, so um, moving on a bit, how many houses did you have to view for you to achieve your first deal? Um, I think it was about about 30 houses, to be honest with you. I mean, we we found it really difficult at the beginning. It is always difficult with, you, with your first deal. I mean, the, the sort of... Um, the sort of way I look at it now is is just you've just got to go for no. I mean, every single no is one step closer to a yes. And at the end of the day, property is a numbers game. And the maths is that you usually will have to take around 100 phone calls to then view about 30 properties to then put in 25 offers to only get one deal. Um, so, yeah, it, it was about it was about 30, wasn't it, Hannah? Yeah, if not more. Yeah. It was yeah. I'd say it was definitely about thirty, and it and it, it took it took a good two months, didn't it, to mm -hmm. get our first deal? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then and then after the first deal, you know, you've learned you learn the whole process, and everything just becomes a little bit easier because then you you're starting to know all the areas, and you're starting to know what things go for, so you you you're more happy to put in the offers at the rate you want to put them in, and um, yeah. So to answer your question about about thirty. Yeah. So um, you said it's yeah thirty thirty viewings two months. Was there at any stage that you just got a bit like demotivated or were you just consistently hungry? No, you do get demotivated. I mean, even now we're eight months in and you have bad days or, or bad weeks. And I mean, property isn't easy. You, you are constantly facing rejections. There's always a problem. Nothing's ever straightforward in property as much as you want it to be. Um, so there are times, I think, and, and you guys will will feel this as well when there's two of you it's a bit easier because you both won't want to quit at the same time there'll be one of you who feels like right thrown in the towel this is this is just why is there so much rejection and then the other one will be like no come on keep going and we had a really bad week the other week um and we were both like oh my god why is this so hard why is everything seems to be going wrong this week and then the week after it's like you sell a couple of deals refibs are back on track clients happy mm. you've got people wanting to sign up and be um come on board as new bespoke clients so it is a real roller coaster and yeah. um, so yeah definitely in those two months just because if we were just starting out we didn't appreciate how hard it was going to be um but for anyone who was starting out just persevere because of the the good times far outweigh the bad yeah and another thing is is just 
you always try and find a solution for something because what the way that I look at it is the the problem isn't actually the problem it's the lack of solution which is the problem um, at the end of the day and um, yeah I mean yeah pretty much that's my answer to the question yeah. <laughs> yeah so going back to what you said about having two of you I guess even if you're on your own it's good to sort of find an accountability partner yeah. just so you can when one of you is feeling down you can go to that person and they can give you that lift that you need yeah definitely. yeah definitely i suppose it's even just a best friend in property or, or a mentor or or anything really. sometimes even someone outside of property because they just have such a fresh perspective because sometimes when this stuff going wrong you're so bogged down and so can you feel you feel the pinch of it and you kind of do get emotional someone from who's outside looking in they can kind of go well it's not that bad there's x y and z you could do and then all of a sudden it's like oh yeah but because you haven't come up for air because of you bogged down with stuff that's gone wrong so yeah like you said having that someone to bounce off and um, someone to lift you up it is definitely needed yeah 100 percent. going on to sort of analysis for deals before viewing is there anything that when you are analyzing a deal that would that you use to be especially conservative like any sort of numbers or tricks well I, I suppose do you do you mean sort of like what do you look at to make sure it's sort of a good deal yeah yeah okay so um roi is a, a big one i think that's a, a definite like sort of um indication of whether a deal is good or not mm-hmm. um so for most of our clients we look for an absolute minimum of i think it's 15 percent, isn't it most of our clients yeah but that's all costs that's that, that's including all sourcing fees all project management fees if we were doing the whole lot for them um and that's i mean we usually get around 20 percent, but uh the absolute minimum is 15 percent return on investment from for a brr deal um the other ways that we sort of um make sure a deal is good i mean you can be purchasing a property a lot of the time for the asking price but you've got to be looking at at other things like can you add value to the property can you can you make the property open plan down the stairs and really add that value to push the market rent and the market sale if you're looking for a flip um can can you add an extra bedroom i mean to add an extra bedroom you're putting up a partition wall which is going to cost you around 500 pound in wales and you can be adding you know 20 to 30 grand on the house um, it's it's a ma- it's massive, and um, other ways to add value is going up it, up into the attic. But you also need to make sure that it's you know you if you're spending that six grand on um, on you know building up into the attic that it's actually going to give you the end value that you want. Mm-hmm. Don't do it unless it's going to give you that end value that you're that you know all the comparables are giving you. Um, and and that, that's how sort of we look at for if it's a good deal or not, don't we? And it's also yeah. location as well. Well, I think in terms of analysis. Um, always actually asking the agent as well. I think people underestimate how powerful that can be. So asking the agent, well, they've obviously been into the property, they've viewed it themselves, they've obviously valued it. So what's their opinion on the property? What do they think the end value will be? Um, and yes, it's in their best interest to say that they can get a high-end value, but then actually looking at comparables before you view the property. So what we tend to do is if we see and it's a lot quicker for us now because we know the area as well so we'll know straight away whether the purchase price is the true market value or if it's been overvalued and whatnot um 
but we will all as soon as we see a, a potential property we'll book a viewing in straight away because if it is a good um a good deal and if there is a an attractively priced property the bookings will get snapped up very quickly so we make sure we're in there first and then we'll do our due diligence between the booking and actually viewing the property so we can look off of the photos and get an idea of how big the refurb is going to be we'll get an idea of what actually the end value would be in our opinion and what achievable rent um, you can get on that property and then we kind of look at the deal financials we've got a table and we fill in the worst case the most likely case and the best case and if on the worst case scenario you're still making a good profit then provide the new view of the property and there's nothing major that blows the calculations you initially thought then you're on to a winner. Yeah, definitely. And I think location's a big one as well. Um, when, you're, when you're looking at a property on, on the internet, and um, it's good to know if it's near a school or it's near a train station or something like that, because a lot of the time that does make it a lot more appealing to the, uh, you know, the sales market as well as the rental market. Mm -hmm. And a, a, a really good tip is as well that a lot of people will look at a property and think, why is this property on for cheaper? And why can't I get as high end value? Well, it's because it's on a busy road a lot of the time. If you've got a property on a busy road, a lot of the time it devalues the property a lot. Um, and you won't be able to get the high-end value that other properties are getting t uh, a street away just mm -hmm. because it's off the main road. Um, and another another thing is is if if your property is close to commercial units, this can also be very disadvantageous um, because um, it, it, people struggle to get mortgages. So the people that are buy, trying to buy your property on a mortgage, um, they sort of get put off because they have to go through a lot of. Um, mortgage lenders and it's usually only the specialist ones that lend isn't it which tends to then have a higher interest rate so by commercial units we're on about so if you look on such as right now you can see the photos and they focus on the front of the property or you'll have some folks if you go on street view you notice it's next to a takeaway shop or it's next to a pub it's things like that where your insurance premiums are going to be pretty high and mortgage lenders tend to, like George said, not want to lend on properties. Um, so you're normally looking at the specialist lenders, which have a higher interest rate. So it's definitely worth keeping an eye out and doing some research to... Yeah, definitely. I think we've answered that one. <laughs> yeah, that's a great tip, guys. I haven't heard that one before. So, yeah, that's a great tip. Um, if you're doing the numbers on a property before you view it... Um, and the purchase price is a little bit high and the um, the return isn't as high as you want it to be, do you still view the property and put an offer in anyway? Or would you just discard that? Not necessarily. So you'd look at what the asking price is. You'd have a look at what you think the actual true market value is compared to comparables. and Because you do find a lot of people will... Um, overvalue the property online expecting someone to offer lower um, that's kind of just how it goes and then you'd just do your rough estimating because just remember before you view the property it is just estimating so we'd calculate it we'd look at the ROI and we'd play with the figures then until we reach the ROI that our investors would be looking for obviously if the asking if you're what you're thinking of offering is stupidly lower like 50% off and it doesn't even need this massive refurb then something like that that you're just wasting everyone's time but if for example I don't know 
a property was up for 70k but it needed a full refurb and actually two months ago the house next door was in perfect condition and sold for 70k then you've got a bit of an argument there to say well this price was wrong in the first place for us we will always um look to offer on every property we we view but we always make sure we give a reason why so we don't just go in with a really low offer um and leave it there because you will annoy agents but we will always give a breakdown of we're we understand this is the asking price. We're offering this because of X, Y, Z. And it just gives the agents a bit of a case to then go and, and fight for it. It's in their best interest to sell the property as well. They'll know if it needs a massive refurb. It'll be evident. But at least they've got something to work with then, speaking to the, the vendor. Yeah, definitely. So when you um, you said you give reasons for if you put a low offer in, do you look try and give genuine um like genuine reasons as to why or do you try and sort of pick out little things no it's normally so for example we had one not long ago and i think we offered maybe 15 20k lower than the asking price and we had said um we 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 don't break down the full refurb costs and we definitely don't list everything but we all just pull out the main thing so we're offering this uh, I don't know because of the property requires an electrical upgrade because of it needs or we've been in we've viewed it and actually all the windows need replacing because they're only single glazed or window panels are blown so we'll get it's the big ticket items we'll make sure are highlighted yeah definitely and um, a lot of uh, a lot of agents as well sort of understand the investor's motive as well and obviously, if you're going to do a huge refurb and put all that effort in, you're going to at least want, you know, a 15% return on your investment. And you have to sort of put the figures in, look, the properties around here are selling for this. I need to do this much work. It's not worth my time unless I get it for this. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of justify your reasons for it. And then a lot of them will understand. And then they've got something to go to the um, to the vendor to, yes, Pat said, to, uh, to argue your case sort of thing. And it's in their interest as well as yours to, to sell the property. Yeah, so um, while um, taking the back of it, you said that you tried to give your investors around 15%, which includes project management. What does project management entail and how much time does it actually take up? Yeah, so project management is pretty much creating a schedule of works, exactly what's going to happen during the project. Um, it's discussing with the investor the sort of spec that they want their property to be because we work with quite a few people in Australia and they don't get to see their property so um, so they want to know what their specs going to be like so we can send them ideas of what a kitchen could be like and what what's going on with the market and then they sort of agree to the spec um, and then it's passing it on to the builder talking to the builder about the schedule of works getting it all locked down sort of thing and telling him what sort of spec we're looking for um, and then during the project it's just making sure everything's you know going to the right time frame and effectively um, and sending photos and updates throughout the whole project as well to the investor so they you know they feel updated all the time they feel like they're sort of in the project even though they're in Australia <laughs> pretty much um, so yeah it's pretty much just making sure the projects are completed to a time and financial budget and, ex- and to an expected standard yeah I think it's just being that point of contact as well and it kind of goes back to an earlier point George said um, There'll always be issues of problem, uh, issues and problems with property. There'll always be something that happens within a refurb. But it's you're the point of contact. You understand what that problem is. You provide a solution, effective, best way for your client. Then you can go back to your client, 
say this has happened or this has been spotted how do you want to proceed we'd advise doing this so really for the client you're just taking all of that stress off of them they just receive updates um they don't have to worry about it basically yeah pretty much yeah so um obviously you've got multiple investors are is each investor different and meaning do you contact them differently so, so would you contact an investor every month or would you contact another investor every two months does it vary depending on investor very um and this is one of the things that we discuss in my initial call with an investor so as george just mentioned we have some clients in australia so obviously we need to manage that time difference um the time difference properly we have investors who are quite local um we try to communicate with all of our clients as much as possible we actually only take on five to seven bespoke clients at one time just so especially when there's refurbs going on there's so much going on that you need to be able to make sure that you have bandwidth to carry it all out properly so we probably from being contactable at all times for our clients being able to communicate with them regularly and clearly so that that's why we cap how many we work with at once just so anything we've agreed up front especially communication wise we can stick to yeah i guess it's just about keeping it manageable and not mm -hmm. biting off more than you can chew definitely yeah so in terms of your um fees for your sourcing and project management fees do you work them out specifically on each deal or is it a set fee each time yeah, so if, because um, we, we have obviously the two services that we spoke about, the mailing list and the bespoke. So if it's bespoke, we have a set fee for our turnkey investments. Um, and we also have a set fee for our buy refurbish refinance as well, because the buy refurbish refinance actually entails a lot more, for example, pricing up refurbs, um, you know, getting getting in contact with builders and all sorts. Of, it's just, it is just a lot more to it. Um, so we charge a little bit more for that. But in terms of our mailing list, if we're putting things out onto our mailing list, um, we usually go with a sort of a standard price, but then we sort of uh, put it up and down, depending on how good the deal actually is. And if it's going to produce a lot of profit, then we usually put the price up a little bit. Um, but if it's, say, for example, a commercial conversion or something like that, we usually go for a percentage, which is around 2% of the purchase price. All right. Okay. So I guess it's just if the deal's going to be a lot better than usual, then up the price, which is justified, really. Yeah. So if they're going to get a real benefit from the deal and it's a really, really good deal, then, then it's sort of, yeah, it's justified being able to charge a little bit more for it, to be honest. And how much work goes into it. And then the other fee, um, the project management fee, we usually charge 10% of the overall refurb cost. Yeah. As a general rule of thumb. Oh, okay. So with your mailing list, is there, um, can anyone just sign up to that and then buy deals off of you? Yeah, so for the, how the mailing list works, yeah, it's an open subscription. Um, there'll be a sign-up form uh, involved. You'll, you'll get an email and asking if you'd like an initial call to work bespoke. If not, you can just receive the mailing list deals um, as they're sent out. Anyone can buy from them. All that we ask is that if someone responds to a deal on our mailing list and um, saying that they're interested, 
our deal will always be classed as active until our sourcing fee is paid in full for the for the main enlist. Um, and if they can provide all the required documentation along with solicitor details. So once we know the T's and C's are signed, they've paid our fee and they've provided their documentation, then we know they're serious and that's when we'll then class that deal as sold. Okay. So do you, um, with your mailing list, do you just find the deal and get the offer accepted and then sell it on? So for the mailing list, the deals will already be secured. Oh, right, okay. They'll already, so someone may have come to us. Uh, a whole, there's so many different ways that a deal can come to us that we then issue on a mailing list. But yeah, for anything that goes out, it's already secured. Yeah, so it's um, it's pretty much, uh, if it's a mailing list deal, it's either, you know, it's another sourcer who has come to us and they can't sell the deal themselves, so they've asked us to sell the deal, but they've already had it, they've already got the deal secured. Or we've got an offer accepted on a property with one of our bespoke investors and for some reason they've had to pull out personal reasons and then we've still got that deal secured so it goes out onto a mailing list so we so so we you know we're not wasting the sort of deal if you know what i mean um and it's also direct to vendor as well can also go out onto the mailing list as well um because obviously we've agreed with the the vendor that we're going to put this out to our investors and um and that yeah they're, they're the sort of the ways mm-hmm. that we that we put deals out onto our mailing list Moving on a bit to, um, well, moving back a bit, you said that before you started, you set up Dugar Property, you went on a lot of courses and did a lot of research. So did you go on any paid courses? And if so, would you say they were worth it? Um, Well, we didn't go on any paid courses. Uh, We've been on uh, Samuel Leeds' crash course, two-day crash course. Uh, we've been on Legacy One Day, Martin Roberts One Day, and also Kevin Green's One Day. And on top of that, we've just, uh, you know, I've had a little bit of experience up in London with my dad in property investing. Um, we've read a lot of books and a lot, a lot of networking and stuff, and done a lot of YouTube videos. And in in terms of whether people whether people should go on a course, I I think that it it could leap it leapfrogs people if you know what I mean. It, it, if you want to go on a course, you will probably get to you will probably get educated a lot, quicker, but you might not learn the ups and downs of the process and the mistakes that can happen. But I think I, I personally think we've done it the right way, don't you, Hannah? It's it's the way that's worked for us. So the analogy that I always use is, so you have a load of driving lessons, but you don't actually learn how to drive until you pass your test because that's when like, the proper driving starts and you've got no one there to support you. So it's similarly with training. It, for sourcing, if you jumped into sourcing, you're jumping in the deep end, you'd learn the best way. If you pay to go on training, they will leapfrog you, as George said, um, to the finish line, but you miss all those learning curves along the way. Um, I think paid training, there's a lot of people out there now that advertise training. So those who do want to do training, especially because of a lot of those training courses have quite high price tags, it's worth researching about them first and not just jumping on anyone you find and making sure that they have good success stories. But the, the training can be so beneficial and you can meet a lot of people on them that would be good for your network. It just for us we didn't feel that the paid training would have taught us more than we'd already found out. So definitely utilize the free training courses. 
reach out to people who are on a similar journey to you and maybe are a few steps ahead because they've already gone through it. Um, that's not to say you'll never do paid training. It's just at the moment we didn't feel the need to. When we were attending the training courses, we find they were just confirming the knowledge we'd already built. Yeah, definitely. And I think a lot of people have had, you know, a lot of people have been educated and they're doing really, really well now. And also, the, you know, these things like um, Legacies Academy and stuff like this, like or Samuel Leeds' Academy, any of these sort of things, um, people people are doing so well from them because of the contacts that you get within mm-hmm. it. Um, people are really, you know, meeting the right people that are sort of, again, leapfrogging their journey mm. um so so i mean it, it is definitely a de- it's, it's a debatable topic really it's a personal choice i think and it, it also comes down to whether you can afford to do it i don't personally i don't advise going and taking out loans and stuff to attend training i definitely think it should be paid for organically because it can kind of cause all sorts of trouble otherwise but if people do have the money, at the same time, it, it, it is definitely a personal choice for sourcing. I genuinely don't think you need to go on the paid training. No. But that, like I said, that is a personal choice, and that's just from our experience. Everyone's different. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just sort of down to how sort of risk-averse you are and just personal circumstances, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. For anyone that wants to learn about sourcing, how would you advise them to learn? Would you advise them to read books or shadow someone that's already doing well? A bit of both, I think. Shadowing someone is always a good start. If you're starting off in sourcing, you always have that chicken and an egg kind of scenario. If you can buddy up with a sourcer that you know does well and they're happy for you to work with them and they can they can help you and answer any questions you have you also then have the advantage of being able to find deals not only for them to review to give you some feedback but if they agree that you found a good deal they split the fee with so that is always a good way of doing it there is a lot of books you can read and youtube videos um and you'll find a lot of stuff even on facebook there's so many people now on, on instagram that put out so much content and I hope we're, we're seen as doing that as well that there is so much free material you can find that will help you learn how to be sources or to better yourself for sources definitely definitely yeah I think it's just sort of trying to utilize as many ways as possible to grow and learn yeah yes yes exactly and the other thing is it's just enjoy the journey like you know, you you could go on a course and um, you could learn everything within you know a couple of months or something. But we quite enjoyed doing you know six months of learning all the reading all the books, going to all the networking and everything, and really becoming confident and actually learning on the job sort of thing as well. So um, and and also in terms of shadowing, there was someone who's um, someone actually contacted me and I, uh, I think it was a week ago now. And he lives over in Swansea, so not far away. And he asked me if he can come over and shadow me, shadow me for a day, around on viewings and stuff. And I was like, yeah, of course you can. Um, so, so that's gonna, he's gonna come around with me at some point soon. And um, yeah, that's definitely a good way of um, of learning is shadowing, shadowing another saucer. Yeah, I think especially in property, people are so helpful, and they'll always. We found especially like we've reached out to so many people, and they've all been willing to help us in some way. Yeah, it's very rare you'll find someone that doesn't, and 
at the end of the day, if they don't want to help you, then just move on to the next one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, um, moving on a bit to actually sourcing and finding deals, do you usually use more direct-to-vendor deals or do you use estate agents more for your deals? Yeah, so I'd say um, a good 75% of our deals have come from estate agents. Mm -hmm. And we've built great relationships with estate agents. And um, yeah, we found the agents are absolutely brilliant. And to be honest, they have 95% of the properties that you know that sell. So if, if you're not going for them, you're essentially putting yourself out of the market. Um, but I'd say 25% of our deals have come from uh, direct-to-vendor. And, and they have pretty much just come from putting up, like we said earlier, just putting yourself out there on social media, telling everybody what you do going into our BNI meetings, basically shouting out, look, we want some properties uh, below market value. We can help people in situations where they've got a problem property and we can solve their problem. We have a lot of different techniques. We have lease options. We have assisted sales. We have rent to rents. We have all these different tools that we can potentially help someone if they've got a problem. And we, and another thing is we can just offer them, you know, a cash offer, um, which is, which is huge. So, um, so yeah, I'd say, would you agree, Hannah? It's about seventy-five percent of our properties have come through estate agents, yeah, and about twenty-five percent have become have come through direct direct to vendor. Yeah, uh, we are actually in the process right now. We've got, I think, we've got one more filming session to do with our videographer, and then we're going to have um, a video basically that we can put out as on Facebook ads, and we're going to start uh, really pushing Facebook ads because we believe it's the new and uh, modern way of leafleting. Um, now the internet's a huge thing. We believe it is basically, it's on, it is some, on someone's doorstep. It's the same sort of thing, but just on the on their phone instead of on their doorstep. Um, so yeah, we're definitely going to start pushing uh, Facebook ads as a direct vendor marketing campaign, um, uh, as well as the uh, as well as the estate agents and other methods we use. Yeah. So with agents, how did you go about building the relationships with them in the beginning, especially? So I think um, with agents, like we said earlier, BNI was a big help of being introduced um, to agents. But actually, just booking viewings, you'll you'll find in your area, there's definitely um, agents that have more of the market, so you'll find you're on a viewings a lot more with them. Um, and actually taking the time to get to know them on viewings and speaking to them and talking about what you do. If you're open and transparent, um, you'll get to build the relationships better. So you do more of the viewings than you, but that's how, how you found it. Yes, and it's um, it's just being totally honest with them as well from day dot. You've literally just got to say to them, look, I'm a property investor and property sourcer. We buy properties ourselves, but for this particular one, we're actually looking for looking for um for a client uh, we have all of their proof of funds we have their ID we have everything and um, as long as long as they give the go-ahead we're, we're ready to go and then they, they will respect you for being honest and if you've got all their proof of funds and everything it's just basically like you're acting for yourself um, so so that's that's pretty much the way we've built relationships with agents haven't we yeah. and, it, and, it, and it's it, it's being yourself as well don't act like you need to be someone just be who you are have a laugh talk about things other than property um, and uh, it, yeah, that's pretty much the way we've built relationships. I think we've got really good relationships now, haven't we? I yeah. mean, going when you're driving by, just pop in and say hello. Um, if you've got anything on at the moment, anything that we can have a look at, um, and yeah, just giving them a ring every every week or so, and just see if there's anything going and how they are. Basically, like after the floods, 
in, in Wales recently. We just pretty much rang up all our agents, asked them if they're all okay, how their properties are and everything like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just basically being a normal person, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess it's just doing, like, the little things, um, just a little extra, really. Nothing yeah. special, but, yeah. So, um, moving on a bit, um, now, how many viewings do you aim to do per week? Yeah, so we don't really have an aim as such, but we do usually view approximately 15 properties per week. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty much it, isn't it? Yeah, I think um, definitely it's not one of the KPIs that we measure only because of it's the quality of the viewings, not how many you get in. So it's making sure you find those good because for one week you might only do two viewings for the full week if you've got lots of other stuff going on and you've got refibs on and stuff. Um, but it's making sure you get two good ones. It doesn't necessarily mean um, say you've got ten viewings booked in for one day. Doesn't necessarily mean that, that you've had a good day because if you're rushing from place to place, have you really viewed that property correctly? Have you actually taken the time to build the relationship with our agent? Um, has it been the best use of your time? So, yeah, as George says, we probably average about 15 a week. Yeah. Sometimes it'll be more, sometimes it'll be less, but it's just making sure you're viewing the right properties. Yeah, because if you don't get them right the first time, you're not seeing everything. It's only going to cause you issues down the line mm. because if you then didn't catch everything in that viewing and then it comes to the fact that the builder goes in before the, the property completes and he says, well, the refurb's five grand more than what you thought it was before then it's only going to cause you a problem then because the investor's going to pull out and it's going to you're going to waste all your time so it, it's worth taking the time of that whole viewing to properly inspect the property and as well as that uh, build that relationship with the agent and don't rush from viewing to viewing to viewing to viewing to viewing um, all day long I find I mean a lot of people say that they do 10 viewings in a day and I really don't know how <laughs> to be honest with you um, every day 10 viewings a day every day I just I just don't get it because I as soon as I come out the property I need to remember everything that we've spoken about with the agent note it down make sure I all the important bits like you know if there's if there's a crack I need to sort of write down what it looked like the picture look at the picture everything like that and um, also take yeah like Hannah said take the time to actually speak to the agent and find out about the history of the property and and um and all things like that really yeah i guess you can't really do like detailed good quality sourcing if you're sort of rushing around yeah so when when you're actually in the viewing inspecting the property what are you looking at to see whether it could potentially be a deal that's completely a no-go yeah, so we, we actually did a live on this the other day, mm-hmm. didn't we? And there's um, the things that we sort of look out for on viewings, the big things. I'm not going to go through everything because I'll be here all day. But <laughs> <laughs> the, the big things is electrics can cost you a lot of money if you need a full rewire. Um, so it's definitely worth, as soon as you walk into the property, looking up at the uh, you know, the, the electrics box. If it's a rewire fuse board, it's definitely going to need a rewire. Um if it's a if it's a modern fuse board, it might not need a rewire. Um, but it's worth taking a picture of it and sending it to an electrician you know, and just let, letting them have a quick look. Um, it's also worth noting that there's uh, there's there's things called RCDs that are on the fuse box as well. 
and they are basically protected devices that comply with current regulations. Um, and, and that sort of gives you an indication that it's quite up to date. Um, another thing is cracks. Uh, they are obviously um, quite a serious thing. If, 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 they're, uh, if you can fit a 10p piece inside, um, or you can basically see daylight through them. If you can see daylight through your crack on an external wall, you're quite likely, it's quite likely you've got subsidence. Um, so you re they are very important to look out for. Um, a lot of people worry about hairline cracks, like little cracks in the plaster. Um, in properties and you really don't need to worry about them a lot of the time it's just because during the refurb or you know any time during tenants living in the house or anything like that someone might have knocked a bit of woodwork with a hammer or anything like that and it's just cracked the plaster it, it's nothing serious it's not gone through to the to the block work or the brickwork or anything like that it's just it's just a little hairline crack um, and then another thing that we look out for is uh, is damp um, damp is a sweat looking patch thing basically mm. and um you could don't get it confused with condensation which is all the black stuff on walls that's basically just because tenants may have you know dried their clothes on clothes horses in the in the house or something like that, not ventilated or, or not ventilated properly or something like that but but when you do see damp you need to figure out what the cause of that damp was so you want to be looking at outside the you know the guttering is there something wrong with the guttering and it's running down the wall causing damp if it's stairs you might look up at the ceiling and notice that it might be coming from the bathroom upstairs. If you're upstairs in the property and it's come from the ceiling, it might be something to do with the roof. There might be a slip tile or something like that. Um, there's all sorts of reasons for damp. Uh, another one is render. It could, you could have defective render, and therefore there's penetrative damp through through the, the water getting in and penetrating the, the property walls. Um, another thing we look out for a lot in, uh, in uh, South Wales is knotweed, Japanese knotweed. Um, it can cause a lot of issues with with lending um, on the refinance, um, and I think we've pretty much covered all the. And the roof. Oh, the, yeah. The roof's the big one. So I know when George does his viewings, um, he normally likes to arrive a couple of minutes early before the agent, so he can walk as far away uh, from the property to get a real good look. The roof, because obviously that's another big costly item if that needs to be replaced or if there's any problems, problems there. So they're kind of the main. <laughs> that we look for on viewings like i just said they're the kind of the big costly things that need to be replaced or fixed but what what we have is a property inspection which is really thorough um and completed for every viewing so what we always um we always advise the people to do is they do a full video walkthrough when they're viewing the property for anything that you're unsure on um especially stuff like cracks um or electrics taking photos that you can share them with your qualified team members who can advise you better but what that just allows you to do is if you've picked a thorough inspection booklet and you've done a full video walkthrough when you get back to the office and you, you can kind of cross-reference them to be able to uh, give yourself a, a good estimated refurb because of like we've just said if you're doing loads of viewings in one day they all seem to merge into one property so keeping them keeping good notes keeping just to, uh, to help you when you are estimating. Yeah, definitely. And I forgot to mention one of the big ones as well is obviously the boiler. Yeah. Um, you need to, it's really good to take a picture of the boiler and send it to a gas engineer you may know. But it's also keeping an eye on, uh, on what sort of brand the boiler is because some brands can be very problematic. For example, Ferroli boilers. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got like a Worcester or a Baxi, they're usually quite reliable. 
Um, but it's worth uh, sort of asking the state agent what year it was installed and when it was last serviced as well. Um, and just just rolling back as well to when I turn up at viewings about 10 minutes with state agents and I have a look around the area and I also have a look up at the property from as far back as I can. And I just have a look at the property. I have a look at the, you know, the soffits, the fascias, the guttering. Just make sure it's all in line because if it's bowed, there could be some serious subsidence going on there. And also have a look at the tiles on the floor as well. There's no slip tiles because um, if you're going to have to repair parts of the roof, it can be very, very expensive. Um, and it's not just taking into account the fact a few tiles need to be replaced. It's also putting the, gu um, the scaffolding up, which costs, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of money to put scaffolding up. Um, so, so yeah, they're, they're the sort of main things that, that you should look out for. There probably are a few others, but we'd be here all day. If mm. <laughs> yeah, that's some really great golden nuggets from you guys there. I guess it's just sort of, it's about being as rigorous as possible and writing everything down so you don't forget. Yep. So, um, moving on from, not moving on really, but talking about refurbs how do you go about costing everything up then so as we mentioned earlier george has got experience in the in the building trade which definitely helps us um but we've worked with our builders regularly now to know how they how they what their costings are um it's kind of like i just said when you view the property you'll, you'll get a feel when you do it more regular what like i just said the build team charges but for anything that you're unsure on this and think you've got a concern on a crack just share that with your builder beforehand because then they can give you an indication on how much it will be to fix it so you can add that instead of it just being a complete guesstimate at least they've given you an indicative cost um always add a contingency because of as good as you are at SME firms that you don't you can't be 100 percent sure that that's what the firm quote is going to come in at so always add a contingency but yeah, it's kind of just your experience, really, isn't it? And how how regularly we've done it now, and how many refurbs we've had. It all just comes with experience. Yeah, it, re it really does. And when when you're working with, you know, if you've got two or three build teams, even one build team, you'll start to just realise um, what their price, what pricing, what pricings are basically. So so for example, in Wales, we sort of go for a, a kitchen. You're usually looking if you're looking for a rental kitchen, you're looking at two thousand seven hundred and fifty. If you're looking for a nice kitchen that you want to flip it, you're looking at three thousand five hundred. It's just that standard sort of figure that you know and you just go by. And then and then what you can do is then you can get the builders in to just sort of confirm it before you you push things forward. Mm -hmm. But you you've you've sort of you sort of learn with your builder side by side and um and uh, it, it, it does take a few months to know everything. I mean, I might have been in the building trade, but I didn't know anything about, um, all, you know, the heating and the gas and the electrics and things like that. And that's all just stuff that I've learned on, on, on within property, really. Mm -hmm. And you'll find with refurbs, there's things that people commonly miss. So, like, for example, people forget to add gips. I mean, that can be like 250, 300 pounds. Yeah, when people skip. say about replacing a door, they forget if, to double check if they need to change the architrave. People want new flooring, or do you need new skirting boards as well? They, there's a lot of small things that can get, well, they're not small, they can be quite costly, but they can be, be overlooked. So it's, like I said, having their inspection booklet that we have to make sure you cover everything when you are pricing things up. We'll normally have a good estimate of what it's going to cost. We can put an offer in then then we can get a build team in to provide a firm build quote and provide a nail line and they're not too far apart. 
within our investors are happy to proceed. But yeah, that's that is definitely important. It's just making sure all those little things that you just forget are about. Uh, for, for, like Hannah said, a skip two hundred and fifty to three hundred quid in Wales, and if it's a big refurb, it's going to need two. That's six hundred quid. That can knock into your um, into your margins quite a lot if you're buying a property for a small purchase price. And it's just down to things like a deep clean. If it's a big house, that can cost two three hundred quid. Um, what else is there? Gas and electric checks when at the end because the, you need to have gas and electric checks in order to be compliant to rent. Mm-hmm. They can cost two hundred quid. Yep. So it's all these things. Before you know it, you've got a, you're up to like a couple of grand, and then mm. it's really knocked your margins out. So it's just little things that you need to remember to price up. So have you ever had it where you estimate the refurb costs, put the offer in based on that, and then once you get your builders in to do a further inspection, they actually find something that eats into your margins massively. Have you ever had that? Yeah, we had one not long ago where we had we'd estimated the refurb, we'd had a lined up for it, we'd had an offer accepted, and then our builder went in and I can't remember the exact reason why, it was something obscure. But the refurb then the came in. Was it the dam? Yeah. It was it was, it was really thick Artex wall, so the the damp wasn't visible. You go around with damp meters. Yeah. yeah. So when they did a, a proper damp survey, um, put in or carried out rather, the cost was much higher. But as we said earlier, it's then working with the client and explaining what has happened, and then for us, that client continued. That yeah. was fine. We have had other ones before. I think the refurb only changed slightly, but the client wanted to pull out. But then we had another investor we could we had on the back burner, then kind of took their place. Um, but it'll happen. There will be ones um, where the refurbs come in higher for whatever reason, and the client pulls out. It's just making sure you manage that correctly with the estate agent. Obviously, don't make a habit of it, but it does happen, and they'll understand that. So it's just then going back to the estate agent. First of all, you'd probably try and renegotiate the purchase price because if it's coming much higher for a reason, not because we've missed something, but it genuinely is like like George just mentioned, the damp was much, um, there was more of it. Then you can actually go back and say, oh look, this has happened. Would the vendor be willing to to lower the purchase price if um if the investor wants to pull out for whatever reason because the bill cost is too high? It is just explaining that, isn't it? It's a, that communication throughout property is key. Then that is, as long as you communicate well, that is what will keep your relationship strong. Definitely, because a, agents so one in three deals actually fall through. Um, I think that's actually uh, a statistic, and um, and and estate agents are just used to it. So if you explain to them what's happened and you just communicate. They will just respect that so much. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's just not trying to cover anything up because it, at the end of the day, it will probably leave you in a worse position. Exactly. So, coming towards the end of the interview, um, talking in terms of goals, is there anything specific or massive that you've set out for yourselves to achieve by the end of 2020? Yeah, so um, we want to add another five uh, buy-to-lets to our property portfolio, um, essentially using investors' money, um, but also incorporating the buy refurbish refinance strategy. Um, we want to we want to effectively grow our rent-to-rent portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just on our first. We want to be building that as quickly as possible as well. 
Um, and on top of that, we want to be uh, growing our sourcing business. Uh, um, systemizing it with employees. And systemizing it as well. Um, so they're, they're, they're sort of our main goals, aren't they? Mm -hmm. um, but we also want to, really want to, we've started pushing this in our BNI meetings a lot more now as well. We want to help people with, uh, with problems in property. So there's quite a few people that, you know, might have a portfolio that's really getting run down and they're just fed up with their, with all the properties, but there's, there, there's situations that can help them and we can help them. For example, assisted sales and lease options, and we can really help them in that situation to get them out of problem. Um, and uh, we really do want to start helping people in those situations a lot more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, they all sound like very good goals that you can um, easily, not easily, but work hard towards, and I'm sure you'll achieve them. But um, So if you could go back to the beginning of your career or your younger self, what three tips would you give yourself? Um, I think one of mine would be uh, just do it. Whatever you want to do, put your mind to it and just do it. Um, you, you're bound to be nervous or anxious, but feel the fear and do it anyway. Just push yourself out of your comfort zone and don't give up. Like I mentioned earlier on, just keep on being persistent. You will get a lot of rejection, but just keep going and you'll achieve what, what you want. Yeah, I think I've briefly... Um... Might, might have gone over over it slightly with you just before the podcast before we started filming as well that I, 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 I'm not saying I'm not putting people off going to university because I know it's good for a lot of people but I, I would have told my not to go um, and the reason is is because I have such a such a business minded brain and I'm I, you know I'm just an entrepreneur at heart really and um, the the system of university for me was just for me to become an employee um, and I didn't. I didn't want that. I wanted to run run my own business. So, so it's definitely something I would tell myself. Yeah, and then I think the final one, um, if I could go back and tell my younger self, would definitely be be confident. There's a lot of people who um, are very much focused on age and might see you as as young. Where just be confident. You know your stuff. Um, don't let anyone make you feel, or don't let anyone belittle you. Just discard them. There'll be other people who will look at you as one of the same. So don't, yeah, just don't worry about age. Be confident. Know your stuff. Be bold. Yeah, a lot of people don't care about experience. They care about the drive. Yeah, hundred percent. That someone has. Um, we've recently taken on um, someone on as a as a basically managing our rent to rent portfolio. He's only been in rent to rent for I think it's six seven months. Yep. And his drive is absolutely insane. And there's no way we would have picked anyone else to manage our um, rent-to-rent -rent portfolio just because he's got such a drive. And he, you can just tell that in that six to seven months that he's been working, he has learned so much. And it's about the quality of the experience, not about the length of the experience. Yep. Yeah, 100%. There's some really great tips, guys. So, finally, is there any special mentions that you want to give to anyone? Ooh. <laughs> um, I tell you what, the one person we, in terms of, I tell you what, the one person that we always do give a shout out to, um, not just because of the help they've given us or that on a daily basis as well, or their knowledge, it's just because they're so good at their job, and that's our mortgage broker Shaz. Yeah, Shaz. You will find him all over Facebook, Shaz Adamez. He works all over the UK helping people with their finance, whether it's bridging or mortgages, and he is just insane at what he does. Yeah, definitely. Um, other mentions, definitely Ben Brand. 
Yeah. He's uh, he's the person that we were just speaking about uh, uh, who's going to be managing our rent-to-rent portfolio. He's great. Um, Hannah Mills, we work quite closely with her on a mm-hmm. lot of projects. She's absolutely brilliant. Um, and Ted Singh as well. He's he's great. He's yeah. We've worked alongside him on a lot of things, and we're, we're in the same sort of uh, stage in our journey, aren't we? Yeah. Um, so I, I think that's the, the, yeah. we'll probably miss loads, but probably. But there's some people who work plastic out. We work with them daily, or they they help us daily. So yeah, they they definitely deserve some shout out. Yeah. Yeah. If they have, if any of them have Instagram, we'll make sure to link them all down below in the show notes. But on that note, guys, I think it's a good time to end the podcast. So we want to thank you for coming on today. It's been an absolute pleasure to interview you both great Great. thank Thank you you very much guys it was really really good no problem so on that note guys thank you for listening we hope you've enjoyed this podcast and make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you're listening on and we'll see you next week for another one